the trials of Jesus. We've been talking about what happened from the cross to the throne. And we've been going through different segments of that last week of Jesus' earthly life and just explaining both what was going on with regards to His work reaching to us by way of atonement. And we've also been trying to make you know, some, some uh, points and illustrations with regards to the template He laid down as to how you and I are to walk out life to uh, victory and resurrection power. And uh, tonight, we're going to talk just for these moments, as I mentioned, on the subject, what happened at the trials. Now, all the scripture references are there for you in your notes. I encourage you, if if I don't get to them and and read them, this is still a message, whether I actually read that scripture or not. I need to to get to some things I want to just share with you. But all of those references are talking about the trials, and I'm using plural, the trials of Jesus. You may have already known this. If not, I'm about ready to give you some new information. Jesus did not have just one trial. He had six trials before he actually uh, was convicted, so to speak, and sentenced to the cross. And in those six trials, we find three of them um, being held before the religious authorities. And then three of them are being held before the Roman authorities. And so six trials all together. Is that not amazing when you think about it? You think about how long it takes. In fact, that's part of the reason uh, uh, why Jews have difficulty accepting the accounts of Jesus in the last week of his life because they would say that, that Orthodox, stickler, Pharisees, Sadducees, and the Sanhedrin, which was the gathering of both of those groups, the reason uh, they would have difficulty believing is they were such sticklers on the meticulous nature of the law that there was no way they could do what they did unless they were egregiously violating what they knew to be God's ways. And so for us, all it simply underscores, uh, really as Gentiles, it sort of underscores for us the underhandedness or injustice or unfairness that took place through that time period. There was a reason for that. I'll get to that in just a second. But for the Jews, it ends up being a stumbling block again because they they can't fathom that that would happen. So anyway, let's just talk about this a little bit and let's talk about why so many trials. Why so many trials? You can write these things down. I'm not sure which word it is, but I'll try to get the right word. Number one, to demonstrate his authority over the things of heaven and earth. Why so many trials? To demonstrate his authority over the things of heaven and earth. Again, I mentioned there were two sets of trials, one for the religious system, one for the world system. He went through this injustice because he's standing before an earthly court in both venues. And this is the way, you know, everything's substitutionary. We've been teaching you with regards to this. And so he's demonstrating his authority. He's being judged at this particular moment. But as you know, the tables will turn and uh, he will actually become the judge. But, But it is to demonstrate his authority. He stands before these supposed areas of authority and uh, he's not, he not only rules in heaven, he rules on earth. And uh, the sacrifice had to be complete. The injustice had to uh, be thrown upon him. And this was a part of demonstrating that authority. Number two, he was before so many trials in order to demonstrate his innocence. To demonstrate his innocence. Is it not interesting that even after six trials, Pilate still had to wash his hands? And say, as far as he was concerned, this man was innocent. He was washing his hands of it. 
Nobody could pin anything upon Jesus. In fact, as you'll study, in fact, you have to read all of the gospel accounts as to exactly what took place that last week because every God, you know, it's interesting. It's not that they're hiding something. It's just each of the writers were being used by the Holy Spirit, I think, to emphasize certain aspects of what took place in Jesus' life. And you have to read all the Gospels so they can be harmonized together so you can kind of see what's going on. But in one particular instance, and and you'll recall this, Pilate's wife actually comes to him because she had a dream in the night. And the dream was very disconcerting. And and she received in that dream what she knew to be a word from God, which basically said this guy's innocent and tried to convince her husband not to have anything to do with him. She was the one trying to really working him in the background saying, you don't want anything to do with this guy. He's innocent. He's innocent. He's innocent. And after six attempts at trying to find something to convict him, they they literally had to generate a false accusation in, in, in order to get him to the cross. Number three, why so many trials? To fulfill the vast amount of Scripture related to the Messiah. I don't know off the top of my head, I'm sure I could Google it and find it out, how many messianic scriptures there are prophetic scriptures in the old testament with regards to the death of jesus and even the life of jesus there are hundreds literally i know that hundreds i know that most if not all of them were fulfilled probably in that last week of his life and i just said the reason he had so many trials is because in every one of those trials i can tell you this there was an aspect of scripture that was being fulfilled at each place along the way. And uh, so that's another reason for so many trials. God was fulfilling his word in order uh, for this to take place. Number four, why so many trials? Uh, To embrace, I believe, to embrace the legal, isn't that the word I put there? Is that the word legal? Aspects of the atonement. To embrace the legal aspects of the atonement. I'm going to remind you of several things. Atonement means at one meant. If you ever wonder what atonement means, just remember at one meant. That means we're at one, we're at peace with God, or we're reconciled with God. That's what atonement means. But there were certain legal aspects of the atonement that I believe were important because we've taught here before that when we stand before God and we've received Jesus as our Lord and Savior, there are different aspects of the righteousness of God that takes place in our life. The one aspect is what we call imputed righteousness, and imputed righteousness has to deal with the legal aspects of being right with God. The legal aspect of being right with God. Now hold that out there for just a minute. The other kind of righteousness we've meant to you is what we've called imparted righteousness. Imparted righteousness is literally the transforming righteousness of God. Right? I've used those words so many times, I ought to be able to give you all a test. I won't but you would think. Now we're going to go back to imputed. This is important. Imputed means that when God looks at you, he does not look at you the same way he once did. Because Jesus died for you, and all that took place on the cross, whatever that may be, and I'm going to give you several uh, theories here that I think would be interesting, but whatever that may mean, he looks at you differently. In other words, he no longer looks at you as, I'm just looking at Wally here, as old Wally, But now he looks, he sees something different. He sees the blood. That something has happened legally that has changed you or transacted so that now when he looks at you, he no longer sees your sins and your mistakes and your 
your waywardness or your rebellions or whatever that may mean. But he, he sees the blood. He sees you differently. And that's, and that's great. Some people never get beyond that. That's why imparted righteousness is so important because not only does he see you different, he makes you different. Say, it's not just a matter of you're just the same old person and God just sees you different, but you're a new person as well. But, but he goes to trial because this is a legal aspect. Now, there are one, two, three, four, five. There are five little theories here I'm going to go down. You may not realize this. You're going to have heard all of these at some point in your life, but these were all different ways that people all through the years saw the atonement or saw the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, right? The first one down is ransom. It's called the ransom theory. We've even sung songs about being ransomed, right? Well, everybody knows what a ransom is, right? If someone gets kidnapped, you pay money, so to speak, and you get people back. Well, the ransom theory originally, believe it or not, started that when man sinned, the enemy basically kidnapped, so to speak, man, and that the ransom was paid through Jesus in order that God might get man back. That was the ransom theory, all right? Now, uh, I don't particularly subscribe to the ransom theory because I think it it may make a nice little illustration, but I think there are other verses that probably demonstrate some other things. Number two, and we're getting to where we need to be, satisfaction. Write the word satisfaction. What that means is, is that, well, Romans 3.23 says what? That the wages, the wages of sin is... So if we sin... There is a debt that is occur, incurred by sin. And, and so what satisfaction means is because sin incurs a debt, that debt has to be paid, right? And so the only way it could be paid was by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So Jesus satisfied the debt, all right? Now, and and, and I, don't, I don't have any problem with that. In fact, you'll hear elements of truth from all of these things. So that's called satisfaction. The third one is called moral example. Uh, I don't believe the moral example. Jesus may be a moral example, but that wasn't what was going on on the cross. For many people, they use the moral example theory that because Jesus died on the cross and it was such a moving event. And those of you that have been through Encounter, you know when we watch the Passion of the Christ and we see all that took place on Jesus. I mean, that's pretty moving, isn't it? I mean, that, that stirs something. Well, you can begin to understand why maybe people would develop a theory that there would be some sort of moral example and that it would, it would cause us, you know, to, to, to melt and see this great act of love, so to speak. And because of that great act of love, it would be our example to live above sin. Now, again, I don't believe in the moral example. He may be a moral example, but that's not the theory of what was going on on the cross. It was, his example doesn't make me live above sin. It was his sacrifice that gives me victory that causes me to live above sin. Number four, which is the one most of us are, are, are aware of, it is the substitution theory. It's the one that gets taught most out of Pastor Baird. In other words, there was a punishment. In other words, God's holiness demanded some form of justice uh, to come upon uh, man because of the waywardness. So, so in order for us to be right before God, Jesus substituted himself with us. Literally, he took upon the sins of the world in order that we could partake of the righteousness of God. That's called a substitution. He took our punishment. Sometimes they call it substitution penal theory. He took, he took the punishment of our sins in order that we wouldn't have to take it. That's the legal aspect, which I believe was one of the reasons why he went to all these trials. 
because there was a punishment that was going to be meted out because of our sin. In fact, have you ever thought about this? I, I remember it was some years ago before this really dawned on me. So it's a rel- it was a relatively new thought when you consider you walk with the Lord for several decades. But do you realize that even at his trials, there, there were images and foretastes of the substitution that was going to take place? Because didn't Pilate, he gave them a choice. Would you take Jesus or would you take who? Barabbas. Remember that? And the cry- crowd cries out, Barabbas, Barabbas, crucify him, Barabbas. And literally at that moment, there was a substitution that took place. Now, I'm gonna, now, I've never done this before, but probably ought to. You and I are Barabbas. We're Barabbas. And even at the trial, there's a substitution that you begin to see take place. And then lastly, the last theory is called the governmental theory. And the governmental theory is a lot like the moral example theory. It's, you sort of see the price that was paid for sin, and then you just commit yourself to straightening it up. It's kind of like the pull yourself up by the bootstrap theory or turn over the new leaf theory. Although a lot of people kind of act like that when they come to the cross. Like now I've got to pull myself up by my own bootstrap or turn over a new leaf. See, that's our problem. You can't do anything. If you could have got yourself out of your problem, you'd have done it years ago. That's why you needed God to intervene. He initiated. He reached down to you in order to touch you, to change you, to convert you in order that... um, true transformation can begin to take place. Why so many trials? Number five, to leave all men without excuse. To leave all men without excuse. Whether this is, this is you know, this isn't great news, but it is, it is truthful news. And that is one day God will say to the unrepentant, just as my son stood before you, Now you'll stand before him. It will leave all men without excuse. And so uh, that's a part I think of why all these trials were taking place. It was the height of injustice, the height of unfairness. Um, Isn't it interesting, you know, in our own American Judas prudence, we have what we call double jeopardy. You can't try a man twice for the same crime. Jesus literally got tried six times in one night. Isn't it interesting the word six, number six, excuse me. The number six is the number of a man. It's all that man could do as well. Now the question is, what might these trials speak to me? What might this all say to me? We know that it was a part of the Passion Week. We know that it was a part of what Jesus had to walk through in order to become the lamb slain for each one of us. But what might these things say to me if I were to take the template and lay it on my life? I want to throw four things out here super fast. Number one. This is good. Popularity does not equal purpose. It helps me watching the life of Jesus because the same crowd that will cheer you in one week later will jeer you to the cross. (laughs) The same crowd that will show up as you're breaking bread and multiplying it and giving them fish and feeding them lunch and getting their bellies full will be the same crowd that will stand outside and yell, crucify him. Oh, the crowd is fickle. Do you, don't, don't ever make the mistake of thinking popularity equals purpose. Jesus had no one on his side and he was accomplishing the purposes of God. I have to remind myself of that. Well, maybe not regularly, but semi-regularly. 
Now, I'm grateful for all of you and everybody that goes to church here, and I'm grateful for a lot of folks in the body of Christ that understand what it's all about and what the gospel's about and are certainly supportive. But there are moments you'll do the will of God and you'll be the only one standing there while everyone else is taking target practice at you. And that's just good to remember. I remember one time I was going through a really, really hard time. And uh, I can tell you without a single doubt, scintilla of doubt in my mind i was in the middle of god's will doing what god wanted me to do i i knew i was right as rain it there was no sin there was no error there was no deception it was right as rain i felt like i was the only one and i remember i remember that i also well i knew that that my reputation was getting besmirched people were telling lies you know, just like they do on Jesus, they'll tell lies on you. Listen, I got before the Lord and I was crying out before the Lord and I was saying, Lord, this isn't right. <laughs> this isn't, this isn't the way it should be. My reputation, I, my reputation is important. You know, we ought to be of a good reputation. This isn't right. It isn't fair. You know, and I remember the spirit of the Lord speaking to me and saying, you remember when you were praying before how much you wanted to be like Jesus? Well, yes, Lord, I remember that. Well, my word says he became of no reputation. That isn't what you want to hear, is it, Miss Louise? That's just, that's not, that's not what you want to hear. So the will of God is not always subject to the affirmation of people. Okay, number two, education does not equal revelation. There are a lot of smart people in the scriptures, in the Sanhedrin, that understood everything that the Bible said. In fact, to this day, is it not true that I'll read the Old Testament and I'll see Jesus laced all over that thing? But you hand it to some people and they can't, they, they can't, they can't see anything out of that. I, this guy was on a thread, on a Facebook thread, and we were arguing back and forth. And it doesn't matter what you quoted out of the Old Testament at a Jewish background. It didn't matter what you quoted out of the Old Testament. He couldn't see Jesus. You know, if you hit him with the Bible, he couldn't have seen Jesus. And it's just, it's just education does not equal revelation. There are people that know the scriptures. They've heard the word. They know the story. But it has not produced revelation or an unveiling in their life. That's what this says to me. Number three, provocation does not equal true passion. Provocation does not equal true passion. There was lots of zeal that day, but it was all misdirected zeal. Zeal's a good thing if it's properly directed. And I, I, again, this is just, I'm just pulling out points that speak to me. You got to be careful you don't get provoked into things that you really don't want to be provoked into. Do you understand? They provoked the crowd that day to holler, crucify him. I'd, I'd be willing to bet that half of them didn't even know what they were doing. They just showed up to this big event. This guy starts hollering, crucify him. What are you doing? I don't know. I'm just hollering. All right, I'll holler too. I mean, I'm sure that's probably how it went that day. I mean, there are hundreds of people that were there. They were just provoked. They were provoked into a moment. Provocation does not equal passion. So Christians need to be sensitive about whether they're truly passionate and zealous or whether they're being provoked. I have to remind myself, particularly in the political arena, that just because people get provoked doesn't mean it's God. All right? There can be misdirected zeal. You've got to make sure it's the zeal of the Lord of hosts. Then lastly, number four, and you see I'm done, 7.30. This is the best point of all. I know you'll shout on, on this one. Suffering is still found in the will of God. Isn't that a good word? 
suffering. Do you understand? Jesus was in the will of God. And how many of you know there's suffering? I'm sorry. I wish I could change that. I'm glad that there's blessing and help and hope and relief and, and restoration. And I'm glad for these concepts. But sometimes when you face suffering, it ain't always the devil. Sometimes you suffer for righteousness sake, the scripture says. It says, blessed are those who suffer for righteousness sake. That's in the biggest sermon Jesus ever preached. And I want to remind you of this. And I'm done. Suffering, I'm going to give you the definition of suffering. Basically, suffering means resistance. When you're resisting the enemy, there's going to be suffering. There's going to be suffering. I've had people ask, they say, I'm suffering, Pastor. How do I quit suffering? You just, you just quit resisting the enemy and it'll be all over. That's why people, when they backslide, find relief. Well, tempor- you're right, temporarily until, you know, the liar and deceiver of our soul slowly lets you go spiral down into your destruction. But that's why when people go, I was serving God and it was just hard. It was hard. Everything was going against me. It was just hard. I was serving the Lord and trying to do my best. And everything was just hard. It was hard. It was hard. But the minute I went back to the world, it was so easy. Well, I can tell you why. It's because you were resisting. And you didn't get to the place where you broke through to victory. You got to keep pressing to the place of victory. Amen. See, that's what Jesus did. He was he was he had to move through all these things, press through the injustice of a trial, the brutality of being whipped and flogged. The absolute can't even imagine the crown of thorns until finally it was culminated in the cross. He had to press through all of those things in order to get to an open tomb and resurrection power. Now, guys, I'm glad I don't have to go and and be the atonement anymore. But the Bible still says that I'm crucified with Christ. I'm I'm to bear my cross. I'm to pick up my cross. I'm to press through and walk his steps. And if I will do that, will there be tough days? Yes, there will be. But there will be a moment that I will get to the other side and there will be resurrection power. And open tombs and amazing days. Stand with me.